You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Ken Dagler, a retired career CIA operations officer. Like me, he is also a student of history. He has his bachelor's degree from the Center College of Kentucky and his master's degree from Syracuse University. He has written articles about intelligence for CIA's historical division, Journal Studies and Intelligence, also for the Association of Former Intelligence Officers Journal Intelligencer, and other publications. Under the pseudonym P.K. Rose, he is the author of Founding Fathers of Intelligence, and Black Dispatches, Black American Contributions to Union Intelligence During the Civil War. If you're interested in these, both are available on CIA.gov. He's also the author of a book, Spies, Patriots, and Traitors, American Intelligence in the Revolutionary War, which really brings to the question of uh, espionage during the revolution a new and innovative way of looking at this integral period in American history. If you're really interested in this book, which I suggest you should be, uh, Ken was gracious enough to come earlier, about three or four months ago, to do an author debriefing here at the Spy Museum. And that is also available on the website, spymuseum.org. Ken, thank you for taking the time to come back to the International oh, Spy Museum. Oh, it's a pleasure. We want to pick up to a degree where your book left off, where mm -hmm. the conversation we had when you were here earlier, at the end of the revolution. Mm -hmm. And really from the end of the revolution until several months into the Civil War, I mean, decades later, there's really very little structured intelligence in the United States. So there are time periods, there are little things we can talk about mm -hmm. along the way that start to build American intelligence step by step. And one of the earliest ones is right after the end of the revolution in 1790 with what was called the President's Contingent Fund. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, the Contingent Fund was a broad measure giving the authority to the president to spend funds primarily for executive agents to go abroad, often to handle trade matters and political matters. But there was a segment of that fund and a provision within the law itself that indicated that if the president felt that the activities of these agents were of a, what we call today, a national security interest, he did not have to name them or give specifics in his accounting. All he had to do was certify that funds were spent. 
I think the best one of these is probably a guy named Eaton, who along with a ragtag group of mercenaries and several U.S. Marines ended up throwing the Barbary Pirates out of Tripoli for a brief period of time, and probably best known to the American public as the first stanza of the Marine Corps right. hymn, The Shores of Tripoli. Did that have longevity? Did that go for a long period of time, or was that something that was short-lived? Oh, no, I think, and, and that basically has continued in various legal provisions and, and various manifestations of it today. But in those days, it was used primarily for diplomatic discussions and a lot of trade discussions. So I can't think of as many what we would call today covert actions beyond the Eaton Affair that really fall under this category. Another early period in American history that people are familiar with because they learned about it back in elementary school would be the Lewis and Clark expedition. Uh, you know, yeah. This is something that uh, we're, we're taught as kids. You know, They've got all the way out to the West Coast. In essence, if we really wanted to, we could call this a geospatial intelligence oh, mission. And it's a little exactly. stretch, but I mean, that's really exactly. what they're trying to do is trying to map out the, the western part of what would become the United mm -hmm. States. And I know there is a story that the Spanish weren't particularly happy that Lewis and Clark were making their expedition. Uh, they still controlled a lot of mm -hmm. parts of North America, and Lewis and Clark's mission could potentially be a problem for the Spanish diplomatically. Am I making a dramatic stretch here, <laughs> or is there a, a semblance of truth to that? No, I think, I mean, the key to understanding tactical intelligence is also understanding the terrain. Just as Washington failed significantly in Long Island because he didn't know the terrain, and the British did, we have a situation here where the U.S. was attempting to move into an area it knew nothing about. Now there was a more secret aspect of the orders to that particular mission that indicated they were also to map and identify foreign country fortifications, positions, and what have you. But most of it was exactly what you said. It's what today's satellites do. They were to go out and physically find the topology of the country. And of course, from a national manifestation uh, perspective, later on in the century, vitally important. Really, they're the, the early founders of the NGA. Yes. In, in a, a bit of a stretch. Yeah. <laughs> I like stretching. We can go from mm. there. This. January, January of 2015 is the anniversary of one of the key battles of the War of 1812, uh, the Battle of New Orleans, which we'll talk about in a second. Let's, let's look at the war itself. This is a war that many people overlook. If it wasn't for the Star Spangled Banner, we may never even talk about the War of 1812. Uh, it's a war we, we tend to not talk much about, perhaps because it was a tie, I guess you could say. It didn't go particularly well. Um, did we have the same kind of intelligence gathering capabilities as we did during the revolution just a generation earlier. Yeah. My wife actually has been harassing me about writing a book on intelligence activities during the War of 1812. And I've done a little bit of research in this regard. And kind of generally, I've come to the conclusion there was very little intelligence involved in any aspect of the War of 1812, political, military, or otherwise. There were a couple areas where I can identify some of what was done. You know, starting right after the revolution, the British, operating through Lord Dorchester up in Quebec, was sending political operatives through the United States, but mostly to gather political intelligence, where they were going from the Confederation phase into the Constitution phase, and what that would say about their role in world affairs and who they might align themselves with as the 
European powers was still France, Spain. And Europe. It was that had to be a real concern because you had the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. One was France, one was exactly England. one was British right. oriented, Hamilton and, and what have you. But by the time we get to the War of 1812, again we're a very young country. We're not doing a lot as a federal government. Probably the entire federal government is housed in the old old executive office building over there next to the White House, a very small entity. Couple instances though. One is at the start of the war, we've got a, a governor of the Michigan Territory named, I believe, William Hull. And he wants to invade Canada, figuring if we're going to fight Britain, best thing to do is be offensive and go after Canada, as we normally try to do in these instances. So he sends a guy named John Howe, who has an interesting background. He's a former British soldier who had served under General Gage in Boston. But then he defected to the American side when the British left Boston. Well, now he's up in Michigan farming. Hull sends him across into Ontario to look at the British forces there. And because he still has a British accent because of his military experience, he actually does quite a good job. And, and papers tell us that he came back with a quite accurate description of what the British defenses were in the Ontario area. Very small, regimental segments, but a, a decent militia, fairly good fortifications. So he did a very good job. Hull then takes his force, very small force of American soldiers, oh, about 200 because there was not a great, great sized American army, and the militia from the Michigan area into Ontario and prepares for battle. But this time his scouts tell him, uh-oh, something's wrong. There seem to be several regiments of British soldiers here. So Hull then discounts Howe's analysis and thinks seriously about it. Why? Because the British had done a classic deception here. Yeah. The British military in Ontario, recognizing that they had very few actual troops, took their excess uniforms, gave them to the militiamen, so that when the scouts reported various regiments, in reality they were reporting Canadian militiamen and farmers just dressed up in, in regimental uniforms. Right. So Hull pulls back without doing much in Ontario. Beautiful example of intelligence, how you analyze it, and what deception operations can do. The other, uh, the other one I'm very aware of is up in the Lake Champlain area, there were a lot of customs officials. Even very early on, one of the first services the federal government set up was the customs service, for a monetary reason mm -hmm. as well as controlling borders. They had networks of informants regarding smugglers. And they were able to gather a little bit of information about the fact that, frankly, from the British point of view, the upper areas there coming into the St. Lawrence River and all were not very well uh, fortified. That information didn't really do an awful lot. But those are about the only right. instances I really know of, of a more formalized type of intelligence network. I want to ask you about strategic intelligence in this case, because the War of 1812, uh, a lot of Americans don't realize that we were just a, a tangential part of this, a <laughs> footnote to what was actually happening in Europe. This mm -hmm. is the, everybody else calls it the Napoleonic Wars right. because the British were, were committing the majority of their forces to fighting Napoleon. Um, how much were we paying attention to that? And the reason that matters in this case is because at the very end of our War of 1812, mm -hmm. Napoleon is defeated or at least Paris is taken in. That's the beginning mm -hmm. of the end of the Napoleonic era. That had a dramatic shift in strategic understanding of the British capabilities. Was that something we were paying, you know, hopefully, I hope, uh, was that something we were paying a lot of attention to? 
I think we were paying attention to it, but it didn't have a great impact on us. At that time, we were a very isolated country. In fact, the, the whole tradition of America, even on to this day, is that we have so much of an inward-looking attitude because a minority of our population lives on any border with a foreign country. As a commercial entity, we see ourselves as almost self-sufficient. We're not now in a global economy, but the inward-lookingness and satisfaction of the American people as an isolation factor has been a foreign policy concern since 1765, you know, just, just the nature of it. The point about the end of the war, of course, brings up the Battle of New Orleans. The one battle, right. great American victory fought well after the uh, yeah. treaty had already been signed, but important from a psychological reason because the tactical intelligence that Andrew Jackson had was the recognition of the order of battle of the British forces. And he knew that he was facing regiments who had come out of Europe successfully. They had fought the best the French could give them in static British formations versus French formations as at Waterloo. So he very cleverly understanding, again, the lay of the land, the most important tactical intelligence you can have, set his barriers up, a fortified position, and forced the British to attack through a swamp. Well, trying to move a strong formation through a swamp at the best of times is not easy, and when you're under hostile fire, it's incredibly difficult because it certainly slows you down. And as right. you may recall in those days, because of the capability to reload, the concept still was to ban that charge. You had to get close enough for the band to right. charge. Overwhelming victory for the Americans. Psychologically very important for the Americans because we had taken such a shellacking in the battles around Washington, at Bladensburg, et cetera, mm -hmm. and in other areas. So an important psychological victory for the Americans. And strategically, if the British had captured New Orleans, even though the war had technically ended with, mm -hmm. with, well, I mean, technically it hadn't because Congress and the Senate needed to ratify the treaty. Mm -hmm. The treaty had been signed. Right. The likelihood of them giving up New Orleans probably wasn't very high, and then they would control the Mississippi, and then Western expansion point. would have been really problematic. Exactly, yeah. Wait, talking, you, you even mentioned the attack on Washington. <laughs> That's another moment that most Americans learn about in elementary school. Uh, Washington is burned. The White House is burned down. Mm -hmm. uh, it's one of the... Uh, moments that even historians like John Lewis Gaddis and others have said is at the level of a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11. <laughs> now, I chuckle as well, but th there, there is a little bit of kernel of truth in this in that this was a surprise attack that we didn't see coming. What was the mistake? Why, why didn't we see this massive force of British coming up to attack Washington? Primarily because we had no functioning intelligence organization, and we had a very loose system of communication. We also had very little in the way of, of forces, even if we had know it, known it was coming. We would have had to rely primarily on a militia out of Virginia and out of Maryland. It's important to understand that after the revolution, we dissipated our armed forces. We have a historical trend of doing this right. after every war, you might notice. Uh, what is interesting about the burning of Washington all in all, is that this is the second time that the British, in a war with us, have captured the capital. First time they captured mm -hmm. Philadelphia from in 77 to 78. Now they've actually captured Washington. You know, if you're a good European and your capital's captured, what do you do? You give up. Right. We don't give up. We're fighting a whole different kind of war here in terms of what's important to us. It's a very interesting point to think about. 
the period, as little as the War of 1812 is dealt with, the period between the War of 1812 and the Civil War is essentially ignored uh, in many cases. But there are some interesting moments, uh, particularly during the Mexican-American War. And I think uh, you may be able to touch upon this concept or this, this group called the Mexican Spy Company. And, and it's such a great story uh, that I'd, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about it. Well, we don't know too much about it. We do know it was basically a group of contractors. Once again, getting back to the fact that the United States military has always used contractors, starting as early as 1776. Uh, a group of guys who were basically benditos for hire, mercenaries if you will, hired by the American army because they could go out and screen and move among the Mexico pe Mexican people because they looked like Mexicans, they were Mexicans, they spoke the language, and thus were able to get much closer to the fringes of the army of Mexico in terms of ascertaining their strength, probably talking to their soldiers and what have you. They were basically a reconnaissance force like all good cavalry was, but they played a significant role because again, the American Army did not have an awful lot of Spanish speakers in those days. But that seems to be a problem that we, <laughs> we don't tend to fix very often. I do want to bring up one other thing, though, a fascinating CI point. And this goes back to 1796, and it's, of course, James Wilkinson. Mm -hmm. uh, James Wilkinson was a devious character from, from day one. He had served in the Revolutionary War as a staff officer, always involved in political plots behind, at one point, a political plot to try to relieve Washington of command. So, I mean, he, he was a more political officer. But by 19, uh, 1796, he actually became the commanding general of the U.S. Army, which at that point was about 6,000 people, spread out in two and 300 man detachments all over the place. Not a formidable force. But the interesting point about him from, from a CI perspective, counterintelligence perspective, was he was also a paid asset of the Spanish government and had been for some 15 years. So historically, without stretching the point, this is the most senior foreign agent that has ever been in the U.S. military, right. James. Right. I would be like the Army Chief of Staff today exactly. being on, on the payroll of the Russians. Um, let's pick up with the Civil War because I think there are so many good stories from this. I mean, some have been told, but there's some. let's delve into some of the ones that may have... Uh, been overlooked, or at least some people don't know a lot about them. Uh, and, and I think people have heard the name Alan Pinkerton, mm -hmm. mainly because of his detective agency, mm -hmm. and later on being involved with the formation of the Secret Service and everything else. He's really, during the early part of the Civil War, when McClellan is the overall commander, he's really the first CIA director, the first intelligence chief of the United States during this time period. Uh, what how did he go about gathering information? Pinkerton's a very interesting guy. He wrote several books, and it's hard to believe most of them, but there is some kernels of facts in them, the papers that he left behind that were copied by the U.S. government, trying to give you a little bit more balanced point of view. I should mention that, once again, Alan Pinkerton was a contractor. <laughs> he was contracted by General McLean to run the intelligence operations, primarily counterintelligence in those days. Uh, catching spies like Rose O'Neill Greenhow, a mm. fascinating woman in her own right. From a viewpoint of positive intelligence, he did two things that were interesting, and he did the, the analysis of them. Number one, he actually sent some of his agents, Pinkerton agent detectives, into Confederate lines to talk with generals, talk with town people, including 
some African-American agents who went, went down there as well, often, frankly, portraying the role of a servant of another Pinkerton agent, but having their own contacts in the black community who would, would give them information of value. Secondly, he ran a rather effective debriefing program of civilians coming across lines, Confederate soldiers defecting, and very important, as I mentioned in black dispatches, slaves who were coming over to the Union side for their own freedom, who happened to have a tremendous amount of local information and also because of, the, of the, their lack of formal education being banned in the South, had excellent memories for details regarding names and numbers and locations of Confederate forces. Well, in a lot of situations, the Confederates would feel comfortable talking around them because they didn't hold them to high regard that they actually would be able to understand precisely, the information. Precisely, precisely. Once again, the modern comparison of Dalton Abbey, where they're saying all these things and the servants are just standing there as if they're, they're part of the furniture. Absolutely. Um, another interesting figure from this time period is uh, George Sharp, who uh, was uh, the intelligence chief under Hooker. Uh, and I think here more than anywhere else, you do see some sort of institutionalization of intelligence. Exactly. And if you were to say there was a first DCI, I think General George Sharp, along with his assistant uh, John Babbitt, I believe it was, I think John's his first name, was the one because he really consolidated the intelligence from debriefings, the intelligence from cavalry screening, the intelligence from uh, agents that actually traveled into the area, but also intelligence from balloon operations looking at fortified positions, and for the first time, intelligence taken from signals, tapping of telegraph lines, as well as breaking of, of codes and uh, cavalry primarily finding the uh, courier messages. Mm -hmm. Interesting aspect was that at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, it was the Military Intelligence Bureau through their debriefings, and often in the case of, of Afro-Americans, who knew that the Confederate Army was moving up the Shenandoah to Gettysburg. And that knowledge, put together with the other information he had, gave him the opportunity to make sure the Union Army got there first and got the better ground. Plus, by the final day of the battle, he was able to tell the Union commanders with absolute certainty that the only reserve General Lee had was uh, Pickett. a Pickett's charge, yeah. exactly. When Pickett's charge was dissipated, there were no reserves left in the Confederate Army. They were effectively combat and effective right. in terms of offense, a key point. Yeah, Really, a military intelligence bureau, very... Yeah, you mentioned that they're, they're really the first all-source intelligence organization mm -hmm. in U.S. history. And, and there may not be anything like it until you get the CIA. Per, exactly, it. yeah. Even during the Second World War, even well, taking OSS, the OSS. Arguably, the, the whole OSS-CIO kind of thing. But you're, you're absolutely right. That was a, a beautifully constructed organization done by Sharp, who was a, a lawyer. And I should mention a little bit more about balloon intelligence because people don't realize no. that the use of hot air balloons, primarily tethered, often with telegraph lines circled down, only going up about 150, 200 feet, were an important role in observing enemy movement and, and enemy fortifications. Yeah, and you even brought that up when, when you were talking earlier about the, really the Civil War in the realm of intelligence. It's the first time 
the technical means of intelligence collection have improved to the level where people are really dealing with new things, whether it's signals intelligence mm -hmm. or imagery intelligence. You have the camera oh, around exactly, now for yeah. the first time. Good point. And, and photography of itself became very important. The ability to photograph, say, a Confederate unit and then figure out who was missing in a later photograph gave you something of the estimate for casualties. Photographing a battlefield gave you the ability topographically to then create a map out of that. Or photographing individuals from a counterintelligence point of view, as Lafayette Baker did, to identify, again, who might show up in disguise or as a different persona because they were a Confederate spy. Yeah, um, uh, this was a real development of technology in terms of intelligence, as is often the case. Tradecraft principles stayed the same but moved along right. in terms of implementation with technology. And you, you also mentioned the SIGINT and the telegraph. How much, you know, we, we look today, every story is about the NSA mm -hmm. and, and reading emails. Uh, how much was either side, whether it's Confederacy or the Union, uh, tapping into the potential, no pun intended, <laughs> of, of listening to the other side's communications? And again, very much. The cavalry units that did their reconnaissance on both sides traditionally carried with them individuals who were able to tap into the wires. And although there were code books on both sides, truth of the matter is that when you're in a tactical situation, it takes a lot of time to encode and decode information. So most of the information that was sent from point to point in a tactical area was sent in the open, in the clear, assuming that no one was tapping into it. Uh, as you may recall, in 1861, Lincoln established the military telegraphs office which allowed them, when they needed, to take military control of any commercial telegraph line. They also laid their own military telegraph lines. You brought cavalry several times, and I, and I think from everything I read about the Civil War, and, and growing up my father was a Civil War buff, so I, I read every book I could get my hands on, the, the real advantage that the Confederacy had at the beginning of the war, other than generals who perhaps were far significant, significantly better than their Union counterparts was their use of cavalry. Mm -hmm. You know, and cavalry today may not be considered an intelligence asset, but it's really what they're doing. I mean, they're doing reconnaissance and force, but they're also gathering and collecting important military and tactical intelligence on the battlefield. Exactly. Today, what, what can we say? Can we say that drones are the new cavalry? Probably, because the cavalry always pushed out ahead. They were the screen. They were doing a reconnaissance of where heavy points of enemy fortification would be and what have you, and you're absolutely right. The southern cavalry was better primarily because it was more of a rural environment. They were frankly closer to horses than the guys were in Boston or New York City mm -hmm. or where, wherever you were in the, in the north, although certainly in the, in the Midwest that wasn't true. But they had an excellent, and they had excellent cavalry leaders who knew how to use them. The north tended to use their cavalry at first more as a screen as the army moved forward to make sure they wouldn't come into ambushes as opposed to actually going out and collecting various and sundry uh, bits of tactical intelligence of locations, fortifications, order of battle. And how much of the experience during the Mexican-American War, how much does that play into the, the Confederacy's success <laughs> in Calvary? Very good point, yeah. because interestingly enough, most of the commanders who had the most battlefield experience in the Mexican War were those officers who subsequently chose to go to the Confederacy in the Civil War as opposed to stay with the Union? It, 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 the thing I remember most, uh, the thing that stands out from cavalry during the 
the Civil War, especially on the Confederacy side, was a failure of intelligence, and that's Gettysburg, which you've already brought up. Mm -hmm. I mean, Lee stumbles mm -hmm. into the Union Army because Jeb Stuart is taking his cavalry <laughs> and running all over the place <laughs> exactly, and not doing yeah. his job. You know, and that, that really leaves the Confederacy in a really precarious mm -hmm. position, which ends up costing them the battle. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can kind of see from that how important intelligence from cavalry mm -hmm. was during the, during the Civil War. Exactly. And also, the Confederacy had very little in the way of a meaningful intelligence organization. Uh, a lot of people who are familiar with it talk about the secret line, which was part of an organization in Richmond primarily obtaining current newspapers out of the North, which often had quite good descriptions, order a battle of, of Eunuchs coming a march, or, or the Union view of how a recent battle had gone, or anticipation of where they, they were going to move, which was, which was useful intelligence, as all overt intelligence is. But in terms of secret agents who could go into Washington and actually had access to the U.S. Army files or plans and intentions, after about 1862, they, they really just didn't do very well. And at that point, Union intelligence was picking up and was able to penetrate Richmond with the Richmond Underground under Elizabeth Van Lu and, and, and others, uh, certain railway individuals who were northern engineers who, who were actually running a southern railway system vitally important to the movement of troops and supplies who were reporting to, to Union generals and what have you. So strong OSINT, but not much in the yeah, way of human journey. Very few, so very no Pinkerton human. or Sharp equivalency on the Confederate they, side? They really didn't have it, nor Lafayette Baker. Their closest to a counterintelligence guy was a the provost marshal of Richmond, who frankly was a very corrupt guy and, and used to just take bribes more than he really did much in the way of a counterintelligence effort. Well, fascinating information. I appreciate the time you've taken today to come here and talk to us. I mean, these are periods of history that we just don't think about and, and don't study much. And, and if you do decide to write that book on the War <laughs> of 1812, we'll certainly have you back again to talk about that. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you. And we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us.